This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And buried in all the important stories about COVID and the election was another story that normally might have dominated the news, which is what may well be the most significant hack of all time, putting many companies, individuals, and the United States government, including apparently the Defense Department, at risk. What has happened, how it was done, and by whom are all big stories. And here to help us sort out some of this is Matt Weichhaus, the CEO of Finite State, a company that, among other things, deals with supply chain and cybersecurity. And Matt, what's interesting here is that instead of an attack on one specific agency or company, this was something that just came in through a lot of back doors from a company most Americans have never heard of called Solar Winds. So who are they? What do they do? Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. This is a, a very, uh, very big supply chain attack, uh, probably the biggest that we've ever seen. And so Solar Winds is a network management company. What it means is that the IT systems at large organizations try to understand all of the devices they have and what the networks look like. And Solar Winds helps them map that out and monitor the, the health and performance and, uh, and all of the different devices that are on their networks. So apparently this happened through malware that was installed in all of these systems through an update that SolarWinds sent out. That's right. Uh, effectively, what, what it looks like is uh, most likely Russian attackers targeted solar winds and were able to insert malware into the software before it was fully built. So as part of the development process, they were able to, to attack solar winds, get into the development process, insert their malware. And then when solar winds built the software update and distributed it to their users, that malware was incorporated into that software update and went out to thousands of customers. 
And that then allowed the attackers to gain access to the customer's networks. Now, usually problems happen when there's a new security risk and people don't update their software. This is almost the opposite. This is something that came in with the update. So ironically, people who are not up to date may have been saved, even though that's usually exactly the wrong strategy. You, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. Uh, normally, you want to make sure that you're keeping your software up to date uh, because that tends to have patches in those updates that fix security problems that naturally occur in software. In this case, uh, the attackers exploited that fact to know that most customers were going to update their software on a routine basis, and that was what allowed them to get access to those networks. Now, I know we would just be guessing here, but how easy would this be for an outside actor to do, to get in and insert malware into an update from a company? Is this something that can be done from a distance? Would they need some assistance within that company to get that done? You know, I, I wouldn't jump to conclusions and assume that there's what we would call an insider or an insider threat inside of SolarWinds. I think that there are a lot of different ways that they could pull this off. Now, that being said, this is a very sophisticated attack. It's a very uh, sophisticated adversary who was patient and methodical in how they approached this. They targeted SolarWinds with the intent to gain access to those customers that they had, uh, and they were very careful in how they crafted that malware to make it look like it was le a legitimate part of the SolarWinds software, even possibly to the developers. You know, we don't know, the, the investigation is still ongoing to understand exactly where in the process of building that software they, they inserted their back door. But when we're looking at it after the fact and we're analyzing what they did, we can see that, that there was a lot of attention paid to making sure that everything blended in very well, that it was very hard for anyone to detect that this had happened. And, uh, and so it's possible that they did this all remotely, very possible. Uh, they could potentially, you know, target solar winds, get into their network and perform those sorts of operations there. Um, they could also do it with, with an insider. Uh, they could do it with malware that was on an employee's laptop. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that they could pull this off and we don't yet know how they did. Well, one of the upsetting things here is it was a private cybersecurity firm, FireEye, that alerted American intelligence that these hackers had evaded layers of defenses. The NSA did not know. And in fact, the NSA is among the agencies that was apparently hacked. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it's, you know, let's say everyone is very lucky that FireEye detected this. This is a very difficult attack to detect after the fact. You know, if you're a customer of SolarWinds and, and the attackers were targeting you and they were, you know, executing an intrusion campaign against your company, it, it's, it requires a lot of analysis and a very high degree of skill to recognize that that came from SolarWinds, that it came from the, the software or the appliance that was in your network, that you could trace that back and then figure out that this was, in fact, a supply chain attack. Because supply chain attacks are rare, and most uh, you know, incident responders are, are not going to, to think that way uh, because of how rare they are. So FireEye did everyone a tremendous service. It, it is um, rather concerning that this campaign likely was going on since potentially as early as March. Um, and and no one else detected that. And SolarWinds customers, some of whom were likely breached, included a lot of government agencies, including you know the NSA and DHS. Uh, and and that just goes to show, you know, this was a very sophisticated attack. They were the attackers were very careful and they likely um, 
hurt themselves a lot when they went after FireEye. Yeah, I mean, most of the United States government, frankly, including the office of the executive office of the president, NASA, the Justice Department, State Department, all five branches of the U.S. military use this software. We know that Treasury and Commerce were breached, along with Homeland Security and at least parts of the Pentagon, Los Alamos National Laboratory, where nuclear weapons are designed, and major defense contractors like Boeing. We also know that 499 of the Fortune 500 use this software. We know that because it's it's on the website of SolarWinds. So that brings up a lot of questions about how easy or difficult is it to protect against foreign attacks? You've you've really, you know, hit the nail on the head again here, which is this is you you've ex- explained why supply chain attacks can be so devastating. Uh, there are different places in IT departments or uh, generally in businesses where there are a handful of suppliers that that fill a function and they serve government agencies and Fortune 500 companies, just like you said. And if you're an attacker and you want to gain access to, to those companies, you want to read their emails or understand uh, what financial tra- uh, transactions are happening in a bank, uh, sometimes the easiest way to do that is with a supply chain attack like this. And we know that they're very hard to, to detect. They're, they're very hard, hard to pull off, but we can see now that there are definitely hostile actors out there who are capable of pulling off these attacks. So that means that these are going to continue to happen. And, and to defend against it uh, requires some new thinking about, about how much we trust the software on our networks, even, even when it comes from a trusted company, because you know, SolarWinds, uh, just because they had this attack doesn't mean that they are they should be untrustworthy. It means that they were victims of an attack as well. And there are lots of other companies out there that could become victims of a supply chain attack and their products could become compromised and then they could wind up on many, many networks. So what you know our view is at Finite State is we need to think hard about the software that we're putting on our networks and make sure that we're trying to do verification and we're understanding where it came from and whether it's been modified as much as possible before you put it on your network, before you apply those updates. Final thing. I mean, we've been talking about major corporations, the United States government. Listeners are probably wondering, wait, does this mean that any of my things have been breached? Email. Are we at the point where I have to change my password like weekly? (laughs) Yeah, the good news is for for most, you know, of the general public is this is unlikely to impact you. Um, even though there were 18,000 or so customers of this particular SolarWinds product, and that are that likely includes brands that you're familiar with uh, or services that you use, um, it, it's not you know it's not like consumers are running SolarWinds at home. Your personal networks are not necessarily impacted. We could find that these actors breach databases where our personal information is stored. Uh, they could you know you just as e- easily could pull off an OPM like hack or an Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield like hack through a supply chain attack like this. And we could find that over the next months as, as, as incident responses continue. But at this point, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that the general public needs to be concerned. Uh, we'll learn more, uh, but what, what seems to be clear is that these, these attackers were very strategic in what they were doing. They really, you know, even though they had access to many, many different networks, they carefully chose their targets like the Treasury Department and DHS versus doing wide scale attacks that might be financially motivated. So, um, you know, this does look like it was more strategic and, and uh, in its intent and thus hopefully 
this will have a limited effect on the general public. Matt Weichhaus is the CEO of Finite State. Matt, thank you for taking us through all of this. You know what? Just for the heck of it, change my passwords anyway. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me today. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. So now that we've covered the incredibly extensive hacking that the Russians are suspected of, what might they be after? And it may not be exactly what you think. Max Bergman is senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russia policy. He also spent many years at the State Department. Max, welcome. And the first question is, I guess, the easiest to ask. If this is Russia, what would Russian intelligence be after? You wrote a piece three years ago called War by Other Means. It gives us a detailed idea. Can you summarize that? Sure. And thanks for having me. I think it's important to remember that for Russia, the U.S. is the main enemy. And the main enemy was the term that was used during the Soviet Union to describe the United States. And that has never changed. And so what Russia is after, I think, with this with this really extensive hack, uh, is leverage. They're seeking to gain uh, insight, uh, knowledge, information that they can potentially use uh, as leverage over the United States. Uh, perhaps if a new uh, with a new Biden administration coming in, they may be anticipating now uh, increased sanctions or other actions against maybe corrupt Russian oligarchs. And maybe Russia, by penetrating U.S. companies, by stealing information, by penetrating the U.S. government, has gained a ways to hit back, whether that's against certain U.S. companies or whether that's simply by knowing what the U.S. is going to going to do. Uh, and and so I, I think that this is just, you know, an incredible attack and one that uh, is incumbent on the U.S., um, cybersecurity experts to really get to the bottom of to figure out how much we have been penetrated, because it's crucial for us to know what uh, leverage Russia may have now. The Russians have put a, an incredible amount of money and manpower into this. You mentioned in the article that I referred to earlier that Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu talked out loud to the Russian Duma that the Russian military operates a cyber army of a thousand operatives costing $300 million a year. And this is obviously very, very important to Russia. It, it almost seems more than, you know, upping nuclear weapons or, or anything like that, maybe because this is more likely to be used. Right. And I think the other thing to understand here is that Russia you know, Russia has, a de in some ways, a declining economy, a, a declining population. Their economy is only roughly the size of Italy's. So we're not talking about a, a, a power that at the level of the Soviet Union. But the cyber domain is a great equalizer. It's a way for Russia to act uh, in, in uh, you know, to sort of expand its presence despite its it not maybe not having as large an economy and not having to expend the necessary resources. But what it can do is also in the cyber domain that there aren't clear rules and regulations and procedures and red lines over how to operate. So it's using the kind of vague nature of, of cyber uh, and, and really pushing the boundaries and pushing the envelope. Uh, and it's, you know, the U.S. was supposed to be on guard here. And the, the supply chain attack, which looks fairly brilliant, 
um, is is the byproduct of Russia really investing in its cyber capabilities and really targeting the United States. Uh, and right now, it looks like they're getting their money's worth. Yeah. And when you talked about, well, maybe we're hitting back, it brings up a real question of what the United States capabilities are. We take for granted that the United States capabilities are strong. And yet, as we mentioned in the previous segment, the NSA had to be told by a private cybersecurity firm that Russia had been rooting around in its files since March. How bad is this? So this looks to be epically bad. I, 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 and it's, it's, it's still too early to really do a, a full damage assessment. But by breaking into a supply chain company, uh, which then uh, over a period of many months, not only U.S. government agencies, but, but major co- corporations were doing what they should do and updating their software from this company were, in fact, uh, putting malware in their systems. And it not only allowed Russians the Ru- Russians to penetrate those systems, but then once given access, you know, once the, the gate is open, uh, we don't really know where the Russian operatives may have ended up. Uh, and so I think what is terrifying U.S. officials right now is they simply don't know uh, where the Russians have penetrated. And so the assumption has to be they've penetrated everywhere. And that may mean uh, really just ripping out a lot of systems, replacing hardware at sort of an unprecedented scale. Uh, all the while, the Russians may be watching us and knowing and reading emails and knowing what we're doing to respond to this attack. So it is so extensive that it, it causes real concern over the integrity of not just our our, our U.S. government systems, but also uh, corporate systems. And, you know, the, the corporate aspect is also critical. Where the Russians want to steal U.S. corporate information so that they can improve their own uh, technology, their own companies, their own defense sector or, or IT sectors or, or health sectors. So this is you know, such a, br- a broad breach that it is going to require an extensive damage assessment. And I think it really requires the NSA and others to come to terms with cybersecurity. And we need to rethink about how we were how we go about uh, protecting ourselves. You know, it seems that we were very dependent on a few companies, and maybe we need, you know, to have new safe, new procedures, new protocols uh, that really prevent uh, this sort of breach. That if maybe you know you can't protect everything, but maybe you know what it seems like is one breach enabled the Russians to get in everywhere, and that simply just can't happen. There seems to be a kind of nuanced game going on in talking to intelligence officials, which is, okay, you got us, good on you. Not much mention of sanctions because plain old spying to some people is considered fair game. We do it, you do it, you did a better job than us. But if you go beyond that and mess with the banks or the power grid or open up dams or whatever else is possible, since everything is connected to the internet these days, that's gone too far. Are there some unspoken rules here? You mentioned earlier that we're in an area where there don't seem to be any hard and fast rules. So I, I, I think what is needed is, is firstly, the U.S. needs to work with our European allies, our Asian allies, to begin to discuss, you know, what, what, are, what, what would be a sort of a code of conduct and rules of the road for, for cyberspace. Uh, and then, you know, begin to move that, um, that, that discussion internationally. Um, I do think that we also need to engage the Russians and begin to really try to establish red lines and 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 to deter uh, 
actions deter Russia from taking certain actions. And so that means I think we're going to enter a very tense period uh, that where the U.S. is going to perhaps need to put strong sanctions uh, on certain Russian individuals will need to respond in kind. I mean, it's also what what's apparent here is that this isn't yet, I think, can be considered a cyber attack. This is espionage. Um, and similar to how the U.S. Uh, has penetrated networks around the world. But we need to make sure this remains sort of in the area of espionage and isn't weaponized by the Russians. And I think that requires us to really deter uh, further actions from Russia. The outgoing administration was loath to put sanctions on Russia, removing some and only okaying some when it became clear that the Senate was pushing hard. The Republican-controlled Senate was pushing hard against the Republican administration on things like sanctions. But even then, many of the sanctions were not enforced at all or enforced in almost the most lax possible way. So how much of a change might we see in that now? So I think there's going to be a major change. You know, the, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, Congress, in a bipartisan vote that was nearly unanimous, passed a really strong sanctions bill. And then the administration uh, effectively didn't implement it. Uh, and so I think you'll see the Biden administration implement uh, the, the, that sanctions law. But what they now have to take into account is that the Russians have penetrated our systems and have a way potentially of responding. And so, you know, like anything in in sort of foreign policy, national security, every action will create a reaction. And so, you know, I think there needs to be uh, a clear response to Russia's penetration here, but not only of this, but of the actions over the last four years of of attacking our election systems, both in 2016 and in 2020. And so we need to uh, really reestablish those red lines, but that's going to lead to uh, a really tense period where we're going to take uh, a strong action, and then we need to expect the Russians to respond. Uh, you know, in 2014, the U.S. put uh, sanctions in place against Russia and then sort of turned away. We didn't really expect the Russians to respond, and lo and behold, they responded by attacking our election system. Uh, and so I think any response to Russia, uh, will, will, we have to expect they're going to hit us back. And what we need to do is, is stand up to them uh, and then engage them as well and say, OK, we can get into a, a negative cycle, uh, a spiral of of um, of response and counter response. Um, but we really need to think about how do we establish red lines so that we're not hitting you and you're not hitting us. Now, to get there, you, we're going to have to have some confrontation. And I think it's going to be a rather um, uncomfortable few months. And possibly an uncomfortable few years, but we'll see how this goes. Max Bergman, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where, again, he focuses on U.S.-Russia policy. Max, thank you for your insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. 
visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In the United States, we waste 80 billion pounds of food a year. It's weird in a country that has more food than we literally know what to do with that we have so many families, especially kids, with not enough to eat. Now, of course, we do have programs to deal with that to a degree, stores contributing to food banks and pantries. But what if there were to supplement that something more direct, something simpler, an easier way to get food to people who need it, especially Young people who may be deprived of the chance of getting food at lunchrooms in schools during this COVID crisis. Well, there is something going on. And to tell us about it, Mark Buecher is with us, the owner of the great Washington, D.C. restaurant Medium Rare and the founder of Feed the Fridge. Uh, Mark, do some backstory first. You were already a restaurateur preparing and delivering free steak dinners to hungry homebound seniors. And you've been doing that since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, March 3rd, we started delivering meals to anyone over the age of 70 who was housebound. Uh, we learned a lot doing that, over, over 20,000 meals. And we still, we're still going, but we learned a lot by exactly doing what you said, bringing the meals to the people. And I take it one of the things you learned is that most kids in Washington, D.C. depended on school meals for food and just weren't getting that during the pandemic. So what did you decide to do? So, so that's exactly what happened. So we were delivering meals to the elderly and then school let out. And we started getting calls from public school administrators who had seen what we were doing on the news saying, hey, can you bring meals to this family in this cluster or these kids in this cluster? And of course we did. So we knew there was a problem heading into the summer and uh, we, we were delivering to kids and delivering to families and delivering to elders. And then school started thinking about coming back. And if you remember, it was a very last minute decision whether school was going to be in person or not, like within two weeks of the school year. So everyone's trying to figure out what's happening. Snappy fingers, school's going to be virtual. Now, how do you feed the kids? No one thought about the food. And a lot of these kids and these families depend on the meals they get at school as their basic nutrition for the kids. Do kids have to do something to be eligible for this? It was really important to me that it was dignified. And we got in some tussles with some government agencies over this. I wanted the refrigerators to be open access. Anybody who needed it could get it. No signing up, no giving your name, just walking up, opening it, taking what you needed and left and leave. And the, the government officials were like, well, what do you do if someone takes six meals? And I'm like, who cares? They need it. You know, they were all into, I need a list. They can only get one. And they did I said, who cares? There'll be more tomorrow. And it was a whole different mindset for them too. Um, but it's completely dignified anonymous. You come in, you help yourself. What was there about all this that got Mark Buecher into doing this at first for elderly people, now for the kids? What made you want to be this actively involved and this innovative? Well, my father passed away a few years ago. He was 84. And I knew that if he was held to a quarantine, um, my sister and I would absolutely go bananas trying to get him fed because he didn't have a smartphone. He couldn't order in food. He couldn't order in groceries. 
And I knew he, it was his generation that just stayed away from all that. So I knew there was just inherently from personal experience, I knew there was a problem, which is why I jumped on March 3rd and said, anyone over the age of 70, or if you know someone, we'll bring them a meal. Because my sister and I were in that spot. When I found out about the kids and the problems the kids were having, um, it, it was a whole different ballgame. I've got four kids. And um, I know, you know, the parents aren't proud when your kids are hungry and the kids are not happy when they're hungry and everyone's quarantined right now. And I couldn't, I couldn't say no. I couldn't turn my back. And I knew the entrepreneurial side of me could fix this bigger, better, and faster than the public agencies were. I mean, we were calling public, we were calling public school systems and the people in charge of food were on vacation or out of the office for six weeks. And I'm like, six weeks, these kids are back in school. Who's feeding them? And it wasn't, it just, it, it was a job for them. And for me, it's not a job. It's, it's a purpose. I have to do it because if I don't do it, no one's doing it. And um, like you said, you know, a few weeks ago, the big story that was on your air and, and everyone's air was the 30,000 cars lined up in San Antonio for the food bank. And it was like, oh my God, 30,000 cars lined up for the food bank. And I'm telling everyone, that's not the story. Those people have a solution. They figured it out. It's the 8 billion people, I'm making the number up, that can't get there. They can't get to the food. And that's the elderly. They're a quiet generation. They're sitting in their apartments. They're hungry. They're scared to death to go outside because they don't want to get sick. And they're scared to tell their kids or their families that they're hungry because they don't want them to worry. And they're in a, and then they're not they're not a group to mobilize. They're not a group to protest. They're not writing their congressmen. They're not screaming. They're not kicking. They're just quiet. And they have been completely forgotten and overlooked. There, there's no two ways about it. If we want to learn more about this, Mark, where do we go? Feedthefridge.org. Easy as steak. Mark Buecher is <laughs> the owner of Medium Rare in Washington, D.C., who's taking a larger part in making sure that people at either end of the age spectrum are fed during this crisis time. Mark, thank you. And not just for the interview, just thank you. You know what? Thank you for allowing me to tell the story because we want more. I want people to copy this. I want people in other parts of the country copy what we're doing. Email us. We've got a whole playbook. We can tell other restaurateurs how to do this in Chicago, L.A., Boston. It's good for everybody. We'll set you up. We'll make sure that everyone's set for success. Thank you, Mark. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, we now have vaccines. The question is, how far along are we with those vaccines and how quickly can they be distributed? Let's talk to Dr. Peter Hotez, the co-director for vaccine development at Texas Children's Hospital Center and the dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor. Dr. Hotez, welcome back. So we have vaccines and I guess we're watching the Pfizer rollout very carefully to see how this is being handled. What are you seeing? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, it's still available in limited supply. Uh, Three million doses have been sent out um, with the hope that those individuals will get revaccinated, uh, get a booster in three weeks time. I got my immunization uh, last night and excited about having that second dose in order to uh, know that I'm that because of that, I'll, I'm not going to go to the hospital or to an intensive care unit because of COVID-19. So that's a great feeling. But, you know, I have mixed emotions about it all, too, because I think of the 300,000 Americans who have lost their lives from COVID-19, especially, you know, in the because of that summer and fall surge, which never had to happen if we had had a national containment program. So that that's heartbreaking to think about. And the fact that 
The current estimates from the Institute of Health Metrics are another 100,000 Americans will lose their lives between now and the time of the inauguration. So this is just an awful time in the country. And I'm, you know, I was hoping that by having a national control program using social distancing and masks, we would never get to this place. And because we haven't, um, and, uh, and because we've gotten to this place because of low compliance and people defiant of masks and, and contact tracing and social distancing and elected leaders who refuse to cooperate, we've been now backed into a corner. It means we're relying exclusively now on a biotechnology solution, which is a very uncomfortable feeling. So we've sort of packed all of our eggs in one one vaccine basket. So we're going to, we have no choice now, but to vaccinate our way out of it. So it's a matter of getting enough of the American population vaccinated in as short a period of time as possible. Yeah. Now we have seen some problems early on. One New Mexico uh, hospital had to throw away dozens of the Pfizer vaccine. I think 75 doses went bad after overheating while they were being delivered from Albuquerque to uh, Union County General Hospital in Clayton. Yeah, it's unfortunate. The first vaccine being rolled out, first COVID-19 vaccine, is probably the most fragile in terms of its technology and therefore has the most complicated, most complicated logistics. The good news, though, is if we get this right, then the other vaccines are going to seem like a bit of a cakewalk. So uh, no question there's going to be speed bumps uh, along the way. And uh, the American people are just going to have to be tolerant of that. This is uh, uh, an extremely challenging project. Although I'm, I'm pretty confident we can do it. You know, we, we roll out 85 million doses of flu vaccine every year from, the, from starting around August uh, until the end of the year. So this is not too different, although there are complications because of the, that freezer requirement technology. So when somebody has the vaccine, so great news, 94, 95 percent. Uh, effectiveness on the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, which, of course, is is great news. Do we know yet, though, whether a vaccine prevents me from infecting somebody else? In other words, they seem to be very effective in keeping me from developing the disease, COVID, but can I still spread the virus even after having the vaccine? I guess it's an important question because it will decide whether we're still wearing masks for a while. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So you asked, you know, one of the most important questions. There's two performance features we want to see out of these vaccines. We want to see one that prevents symptomatic illness and serious illness and keep you out of the hospital or the ICU. And it looks like we know those vac- both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine will do that. Uh, so that's great news. But then you'd also like to know that if a significant percentage of the U.S. population gets vaccinated, that we can actually stop transmission of the virus so that we no longer have to worry about social distancing and masks. And that we don't know yet. One, we don't know if we can reach that high level of uh, reaching the U.S. population. We could talk about that. But also, we don't know if these vaccines prevent asymptomatic transmission. Let me explain that to you. So last night, I got my Pfizer vaccine and uh, did fine. Um, now, I, you know, I'll get the second dose. And I know that um, I'm not going to go to the hospital or the ICU. But what about my wife and youngest daughter who are at home and not yet vaccinated? In theory, I could uh, become still infected with the virus, even though I've been vaccinated. And even though I don't get sick, I could still have virus replicating in my nose and mouth if I'm exposed to someone who has it and then bring the virus home. Um, so the qu- big question then is, do, does, do, do these vaccines also interrupt asymptomatic transmission, meaning that uh, that 
you know, we know that people can be infected with this virus and not even know they have it. And we don't know that answer yet. The Moderna people seem to think they have evidence that it does, uh, but it really needs to be more rigorously studied. So now what's happening is the NIH with Operation Warp Speed is planning on doing a big study to address exactly that. Um, and the hope is that not only do these vaccines uh, uh, keep us out of the hospital in the intensive care unit, but will actually actually be used as a vehicle to totally um, stop this virus transmission in the United States. So here's a problem we have. You and I have discussed this before on this broadcast. There are a large number of Americans, and the numbers vary widely depending on how the question is asked in the polling. I've seen anywhere from 20% to 50% of Americans who don't want to get the vaccine. There are some people who are just against all vaccines. We've talked about that before. There are some people who say, I just don't want to be in what they consider to be kind of a beta testing group for the vaccine. They want to see a whole bunch of other people get it first. And then there are people who think, well, if everybody else is getting vaccine, we'll get to a point of herd immunity, and uh, I don't really need to go through this. So where are we with that? Let's say only 50, 60 percent of Americans get the vaccine. Are we talking about something that's enough to get some kind of herd immunity? Or are we talking about a large number of Americans still being very susceptible to this virus and death? Yeah, that's right. If we only reach half the U.S. population with a vaccine, we'll still have a lot of virus transmission and you'll still see people going into hospitals and intensive care units. Um, So we really do need to do much better than that. We did an analysis with a group at City University of New York School of Public Health, published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, to say that number's got to get upwards to more like three-quarters of the U.S. population. So it's a pretty high bar. It's also going to need, probably likely need, we'll need to start vaccinating adolescents and kids. So we have a ways to go with that. And, and the problem is, uh, you're right, we still have a lot of people who are what they say are vaccine-hesitant, and for different reasons. After I get the vaccine, whenever that is, I'm not a healthcare worker and I'm not in a nursing home, so I'm figuring I'm looking forward to another half year at least or so. But that said, when I get it, should I feel free to, you know, get on planes, go into restaurants and kind of resume a normal life? Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of virus circulating. So it really depends on your circumstance. So even though you're vaccinated and you have a dramatically reduced risk of hospitalization and I and being in an ICU admission or dying, uh, the risk is not zero, of course. But then there's the risk that you may still be you know, bringing virus home to, to loved ones until until we know that. So for now and for the next few months, even if you're vaccinated, I think we're still going to be wearing masks and social distancing. Although, you know, places like here where I am in Texas, even now, nobody you know, in my neighborhood, most people are not wearing masks. Or, so that's got to be fixed. Uh, but uh, But life will get better. You know, each passing month, as more and more Americans get vaccinated, this um, – this terrible loss of life will start to diminish, and I'm excited about that. Dr. Peter Hotez is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Thank you, and a happy new year. It looks like it's going to be a happier new year, but we've got some work to do. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, always happy to come back. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. COVID is surging across America, and with that comes more businesses closing down, more jobs disappearing, and week after week, historic numbers of first-time unemployment claims. Francis Stacey, Director of Portfolio Strategy for Optimal Capital, was on CBSN talking about this and what sort of stimulus is needed. Seasonally adjusted, which brings the number down a bit, the number of new claims is 885,000. So the pandemic has been going on since April, and these are people that potentially were holding on or potentially were able to stay employed or potentially got their jobs back when we had a reopening that are now needing unemployment benefits. This is not good news for the long-term trajectory for the labor uh, markets coming out of COVID. This is very dire news, and I'm glad that Congress is finally taking this seriously. So in a stimulus bill, should Congress change the way the money is distributed? Actually, the administration, the Treasury, Congress, uh, you know, they should have met with governors uh, to see what was really happening statistically within, internally within the states. It is really tough to tell. And I do think the people that are lowest and most in dire need, the people that are waiting, you know, in hours and hours and hours of lines for food banks, um, I know that I spoke with an assemblyman from New York, and he said that some of the food lines are 13 blocks long. I mean, that is just tremendous, particularly with how cold it is. Uh, the people who are going to lose their homes, the people who may have just been hanging on to their homes, who are going to lose their unemployment benefits. So this should be the focus, and I think that we have an opportunity, you know, when the Senate gets determined and when the new administration comes in, to really hone in on statistically what's happening in different states, because what's happening in New York is so different than what's happening in Idaho versus Florida versus Texas versus, you know, Colorado, what have you. So I think that needs to be the focus, because anytime you cannot get any kind of a statistical read on something and you're not looking at that data and you're just looking at the national data, you're going to have people in states that fall behind. Many people would be losing their unemployment benefits just as new people are beginning theirs. How important was it to extend unemployment checks? Statistically, we're missing a lot of data, but we don't know what people are using that money to, you know, for, essentially. And I know that earlier on, when the original $600 a week expired, some of the criticism around that was people were using that not to get jobs. I think as this has drug on and more businesses, particularly small businesses, are failing, I think that that's probably statistically no longer the case. And you, we just don't know how many people are using that for what little shopping they're doing this year or how many people are buying food or how many people are saving up for when they have to pay their rent, you know, or they have to pay their student loans and all of these lump sum payments become due. So because we don't have a statistical understanding of that, you know, we're, we're being so careful about the virus and we're counting every life lost as sort of a personal failure, a governmental failure. And I think we need to also look at that with if somebody loses their home or somebody that was feeding themselves is now in a food bank line, that should be a personal failure 
for our government and our Congress and their delays and the political machinations. And we have to start taking that just as seriously as we're taking the virus. Francis Stacy, Director of Portfolio Strategy for Optimal Capital. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Witty Woodhull. I'm Bill Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.